more or less, bigger or smaller, longer or shorter? These are the questions of our time. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the never-ending battle between bigger and smaller. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Only 3% of donors give to charity based on how effective the charities are, but the best charities can be over 100 times more impactful. Many of us spend more time researching our next laptop than researching how to best save a life with our donation. If you want to find out the best ways to make your charitable donation go further, go to givingwhatwecan.org. I joined the Giving What We Can community over five years ago, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. If you want to do the same, that website was givingwhatwecan.org. I got this question from Jonathan the other day. Hey, Seth. This is John from Glasgow, UK. I have a question about Ecosia, which uh, I looked at the website, I switched to it, um, and it's great. What they're doing is great. Um, but my question is more on relative to incentives, like I'm going to do more search and hence plant tree in a magical way, right? I'm a consumer. I'm consuming search. And by consuming search, I'm doing good. I'm planting trees. And that seems to me a bit counterintuitive or let's say counterproductive with respect to the goal of fighting global warming. And I say that because I think fighting global warming is about resisting a, a temptation of consumerism, which is to consume less, to produce less, to do less search, to, to get less electrons going through the system, to produce less hardware that is needed to do those search. And I see this trend in many, many marketing campaigns for many companies. So think of I could buy a cup and when I buy that cup made of whatever rice-based material, I can plant a tree. I'm going good by consuming. And the same thing goes with marketing of electric bikes, for example, where despite me being a user of a traditional bike, biking to work, I still feel like I ought to buy an electric bike somehow because it would associate me with a greener person, which again, if you <laughs> think it twice, it's nonsensical. What I should do is do less search. What I should do is keep using my bike. What I should do is not buy a new cup I don't need. So how do we kind of make things work together? Because we need the marketing to bring people into the cause, but we don't want to use the marketing that reinforces bad habits that led to global warming. I would love your thoughts on this. I think it cogently captures so much of what we need to decide as a planet of 7 billion or more people. Because for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's been an argument going on about our place in the world and about more versus less. There are religions that are based on the theory of be fruitful and multiply. And there are other religions that were based on the idea that we ought to be celibate. Those religions mostly aren't around anymore. There are consumer movements that are based on the idea of less and only keeping things that give you joy. And the very same people who started those movements now have product endorsement deals with retailers. There are movements that say 
that families should have seven, eight, nine, ten kids because human beings solve problems, that the marketplace is a problem-sensing device, that technology moves us forward and more humans keep making things better. And then there are other people, smart people, thoughtful people, who say that without birth control, we are doomed, and that, in fact, the carrying capacity of the Earth is way lower than it is currently being inhabited by, that we need 100 million, a billion, 2 billion people at the most on this planet, that life gets a lot more beautiful when there are fewer people around. Then we think about companies like Patagonia that argue you shouldn't buy their stuff, but then offer renewed used products because they got to make a living. At the same time, there are companies like H&M that come out with a new line of clothing every three or four days. That a company like Nike that started with only one item now makes more than 365 different kinds of shoes. You could buy a new pair of Nike shoes every day and you would never run out. Where do we draw the line? Is there a line? Are we trying for bigger or are we trying for smaller? And this leads us to the debate about the climate and human beings' place on the earth. Because it is correctly pointed out that the earth will survive global warming, that the earth doesn't have a problem with climate change. It'll still be here. Many species will do better. Now, that's not really the question. The question is, will humans in general and specifically have more pleasant, more productive lives when the climate changes? And if the answer is no, and I hope we can agree the answer is no, then what should we do about it? Can we buy our way out of this? Can we produce our way out of this? Or is the only option less? So there's a long thread in the history of environmentalism that simply says the carrying capacity of Earth is lower than the number of people who are using it, and we need to show self-restraint and, if necessary, organize restraint so that we have much smaller families, so that we buy less, do less, use less, consume less, produce less, pollute less. And then there are other people who say human beings have never once done this successfully. Jared Diamond's brilliant book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, contains an illustration that I still remember more than a decade later. California used to have extraordinary wild animals in it. It had bears that could run as fast as a cheetah. It had armadillos the size of bread trucks. There were really cool creatures around. And within generations of human beings walking their way over there across the land bridge from Siberia, many of them were extinct. They were extinct because human beings competed to see who could earn status by killing the last one. That when we think about marketplaces, whether they are heavily regulated, even Soviet style, or whether they are wide open, commercially focused, what we see is that more is the simplest way forward. That more is what almost always happens. People never say, I have enough. Part of that is culture. Part of that is the fact that the only way to make a living is to sell people who can afford it more stuff. And part of it, I believe, is hardwired into us. 
just as it is hardwired into most species to reproduce. That this forward motion of novelty, of expansion, of reproduction, of consumption, it's buried deep within us. And we only have 10 years. We only have 10 years to do something about the climate. And there are people who are speaking up loudly and often saying, the only way forward is to stop right now. Stop having children. Stop building buildings. Stop eating almost anything except maybe stuff we can grow in our backyard and then compost when we're done. Stop traveling, stop communicating, and as you pointed out, Jonathan, stop doing searches. Let's set aside for just a second whether this is even possible. Let's set aside whether it's something we would want. Let's begin with, is it possible in the next 10 years? The answer clearly is no. So what are we going to do about it? Well, part of the mythology of carbon footprint comes from British Petroleum, who hired Ogilvy and Mather about 40 years ago to come up with this idea of carbon footprint, that if you just did fewer searches, if you just burned a little bit less fuel, then the climate would be fine. Well, people don't like being hypocrites. And if everyone feels like a hypocrite, few people are going to stand up and point out that we shouldn't build another coal plant, that we should ban gas-powered leaf blowers, that we should do systemic things to deal with our systemic problem because we're busy worrying about whether we're being hypocritical. It worked. We totally bought the line about fix your own backyard first, and that's a problem. It's a problem because we have a systemic challenge in front of us, a system based on the fact that fuel has been priced artificially low for 150 years since it was first dug out of the ground in Pennsylvania. That fuel should cost way more than it does because we weren't counting the actual cost of fuel, the cost of what it does after we burn it. And if fuel is properly priced, people will change their behavior instantly. And markets are really good at discovering what people want. They're really good at helping us compare value. And so getting the price of fuel right is significantly easier than pushing people to do fewer searches, pushing people not to want the next thing. That if we price fuel properly, we can put the power of the market, the very thing that caused this problem, to work at fixing this thing. So when I think about Ecosia, what a great hack they're doing. They are saying people love to search. People would like to search more. The more they search, the more trees we'll be able to plant. The more trees we're able to plant, the more we can undo some of the damage. So no, Ecosia can't figure out how to price fuel properly. That's a systemic problem that we're going to have to get our act together around together. But what they've been able to do as a very small entity is hack the system that is built on desire. So I don't know how to undo human beings having desire. And I think it might be a trap to keep pushing for less. I think we may have the opportunity to push for better. It's interesting to note that Patagonia continues to make plenty of profits. 
that Patagonia continues to be one of the most trusted companies in the world. They do this not by pushing for less. They do it by pushing for better. And better takes many forms. It might be that walking to work is better for you. But yes, it's also true you have an itch to buy an electric bike. Reconciling those two things is up to you. But in the meantime, if we can get cars en masse off the roads, we're going to do it by replacing them with electric bikes, far more likely than we are to replace them by insisting that people just walk to where they're going. So there's system change happening. It's happening all around us. It's happening faster and faster. But it's not happening fast enough. And count me in for more better. I would like more better. I think I know how to sell that. I think a lot of people know how to sell that. I'm not sure that we're ever going to get to the place where we can sell people on less. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two juicy questions this week. Here we go. It's Randall from Colorado. You recently, in a podcast that I listened to, mentioned the progression of AI in the marketplace in different lines of work overtaking certain roles and advised against pursuing careers in those sectors, in those fields that AI could gain a benefit for those using it. Um, I wondered if you thought that applied to copywriting. That's um, kind of a hot topic at the moment. And it's something that I was interested in pursuing. Um, Some argue that there's a personal side to copywriting that will not be replaced, a sense of personal connection that creates a value and a story, which you've also mentioned is important. 
Um, so I wondered between those ideas, how you kind of interface your logic against their juxtaposition. Thanks for this. And I'm happy to clarify what I was getting after. When they invented the steam shovel, the people who were in the ditch digging business had a problem. Because if you were an ordinary ditch digger and you were simply cheap and available, well, a steam shovel was a much better alternative and you were out of luck. On the other hand, if you wanted to upgrade your work and really get into excavation, well, a steam shovel could become a useful tool. Or you could get good at doing the kind of ditch digging that wasn't appropriate for a steam shovel because it was in a special situation or needed special insight. And I think the same thing is true as AI spreads from one place to another. If you are an ordinary illustrator capable of doing pretty good, maybe slightly above average book covers for science fiction genre novels, well, you're doomed because I can get 40 covers for science fiction novels using stable diffusion in about one minute. I own the copyright to all of them. It costs me no money and takes me no time. Why would I hire you? On the other hand, if you're Shepard Fairey, the one and only Shepard Fairey, well, I'm going to pay what you charge if I need you and your particular reputation and your particular skills to do an illustration for me. And so as we think about what careers to pick, the challenge is how do you get beyond mediocre, which is another word for average? Copywriting? Yeah, we can get mediocre copywriting now for free from GPT-3. Tweak it a little bit and we're done. Mediocre copywriting is worth less than it has ever been worth before. But extraordinary copywriting, copywriting that is the one and only, that is remarkable in its own way, that is worth more than ever before because what AI has shown us is that very few people know how to do it. So my message was, go ahead and develop your freelance skills in whichever area you can build a moat, a fortress around your particular skill set and reputation. But you can't just say, if you need average work, I'm here to do average work because lots of other people and lots of other computers can do it as well. Hi, Seth. It's Gwen from Los Angeles. And I have a question um, about overwhelm. Um, I know you talked about it once in a interview with Tim Ferriss, where you said that you try to limit how much you take in because you only have so much bandwidth. And I have been a freelancer for the past three years. And I recently got a dream job in construction um, back as like a as like a, a specialist consultant in the construction industry, and I'm really excited about it. But I find that construction now is like it is literally like getting in front of a fire hose. There's just so much information, and on top of that, I work for a corporate company which also has its own fire hose of internal communications and meetings. Um, and I just find the whole thing completely overwhelming. And I don't know how to convince the people that I work for that there's work that only I can do. And I should be allowed to do that work unfettered or like unencumbered by all of the difficulties and constant need for attention from people within my organization for things that 
are just, I think, completely irrelevant. Um, any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. So hope you're well. Love the work. Take care. Thank you for this question. It's a really good one. But I think we have to hone in on a key semantic distinction, and that's the difference between information and data. There is a huge amount of data in the construction business, also in every other business, that every time we're having an election and people focus on the polls, there's just more data coming in. We asked these people this question and this is what they said. Yeah, but it's not information because it's not a resilient, reliable way for us to learn something useful. So if we think about giant construction companies, I don't know, like Toll Brothers, there's a piece of information which is on a building site in Tuscaloosa, some screws were missing from the job. Does the CEO need to know that? I think not, because while it is data, it is not information. So then we get to your job, and the bad news is you're never going to get to do your work unfettered. Fettered is the best we can hope for. Fettered, constrained, boundaried, this is the way we do work in teams. But, and it's a very big but, the key work of somebody who isn't actually pounding nails or turning screws in the construction industry is figuring out what is useful information and doing something with it and ignoring the data that doesn't help. That's your actual job. Your actual job is to figure out how to build pipelines and analyses that give you information and not to be distracted by data. This is why social media is such a useless way to learn about how your brand is doing, because your brand is for the smallest viable audience. It is not for the masses of trolls on Twitter or Facebook to pontificate and opine on, because if they don't get the joke, it's not for them. It's for the other people. If you're a comic and there's 40 people at the comedy club, you care a lot about those 40 people but you don't care one bit about the people who couldn't be bothered to come to the club. One group has data, the other group has useful information. So the big breakthroughs, and this is what you learn in business school without them labeling it, is being able to look at a case, a 20, 30, 40 page business school case with a five page spreadsheet and ignore almost all of it except for the information. And I confess, I bluffed my way through business school but learned more than most people because what I decided to do was only read the first three pages of the case and ignore the rest. I didn't even read it because on the first three pages, they talked about the personalities, the fears, the dreams, and, and the desires of the people who were involved. And I thought that was enough information for me to guess where the sweet spot was. Sure, we need people who will dive deep into the spreadsheet and find in that mass of numbers, actual information, not my specialty. So that's a bit of a rant, but basically what I'm saying is there's a lot of runway for someone to become a leader and an executive in the construction business. It is a huge trillion dollar industry in need of somebody who can figure out what's actually information and who can have the guts to ignore the data. I hope that helps. We'll see you next time. Thanks. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. 
carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem, so much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.